0: Keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is the Guileless Gamer Podcast. I'm Stefan, and this is part five of Mega Bluster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. This time around, Kokoron, released in Japan in May 1991 for the Nintendo Family Computer. The Myth of the Stifled Artist the creative constrained by the structures in which they have grown and would produce better, more meaningful, more impactful work if only they struck out on their own and sang the songs in their heart. It's a particularly common myth in popular music, and the list of artists who have left successful bands to start solo careers is as long as the range of the outcomes for those artists is wide. On a rare occasion, you get a Michael Jackson, who see a step change in their popularity and success and become worldwide superstars. Sometimes you get a David Byrne or a Peter Gabriel, who maybe did their best and most focused and interesting work within their previous bands, but who got to explore new horizons and deliver more personal output on their own. Often you'll see an artist deliver work that comes across like a less interesting, watered-down version of their previous band's efforts, like David Lee Roth's post-Van Halen output. And then there are the truly disastrous efforts, what we call the Roger Waters examples, of an artist who had built a reputation as a genius inside of a highly successful band, only to see his own stock plummet when he finally strikes out on his own. Yes, I realize I'm dating myself badly with this paragraph, but it's my podcast and I'm an old man, so bear with me. In 2023, when game development teams sometimes contain hundreds of people, It's hard to think of them in the same terms as bands, but back in the 1980s, it actually wasn't quite as terrible a comparison. Development teams were small and often stuck together across projects, with members learning each other's unique skills and how to complement one another's competencies when making a game. As we've established in previous episodes, the Mega Man and Mega Man 2 teams were pretty stable from start to finish, and each member, Akira Kitamura... Keiji Inufune, Nobuyuki Matsushima, and so on, brought something to the table. But when Akira Kitamura chose to strike out on his own after the release of Mega Man 2, it not only tested whether the band would be able to continue without him, but also whether he could continue without the band. We've discussed how Mega Man 3 turned out, but what about the project that Kitamura left for? What about Takeru? And what about Kokorun? As we've previously established, Kitamura felt unappreciated and resentful towards Capcom's policy of not crediting its developers by name in its games. He was not alone in his antipathy towards his employer. He left the company to form Takeru alongside Ghouls and Ghosts designer Shinichi Yoshimoto, Mega Man 2 composer Takashi Teteshi, and Strider developer Koichi Yotsu, in addition to Irem's Kiyoshi Utata, who had previously worked on Metal Storm. The vision behind Takeru, sometimes known as Sir de Wave, presumably to avoid copyright issues in certain regions, was to create an environment that would highlight creators, much like Activision had a decade earlier, and much like Ion Storm would a decade later. But whereas Activision would ultimately become a scandal-plagued industry titan and potential Microsoft subsidiary, and Ion Storm would burn money in a Dallas skyscraper before collapsing on itself like a deflating bouncy castle, Takeru would release a few games, and then just fade away. If it's remembered for anything today, it's probably for being the development house behind Taito's Little Samson, also known as Lickle, directed by Yoshimoto and released in small enough quantities that loose carts commonly sell for in excess of $2,000 in 2023. The Japanese release is comparatively affordable at around $250 for a loose cartridge. Takeru released only four games in total, two for the family computer, one for the Sharp X68000, and one for the FM Towns computer. And none of these games were released after the year 1992. Takeru closed its doors, and Kitamura's development career came to an end. So what did Kitamura do at Takeru? What was the project he left Capcom to tackle, the one he felt Capcom would not allow him to tackle? That would be Kokoron, released in 1991, nearly eight months after Mega Man 3, and eight years after the Japanese launch of the Nintendo family computer. Kokoron, which roughly means heartwarming, is a bizarre game, especially coming from the mind behind Mega Man. Although both games are move-and-shoot side-scrollers, the similarities really begin and end there. Aesthetically and thematically, Kokoron is about as far from Mega Man as you could get, and that might have been the point. Mega Man, and Mega Man 2 especially, were notable for their cohesive presentation. There was no map in those games, and no real sense of geography or place world-to-world, but the overall setting felt coherent and was anchored by the individual robot masters and their unique theming. Although the feel, color palette, and challenges varied stage to stage, you knew what you were getting into, and everything felt like it belonged in the same game. A a huge part of that was the anchoring effect of Mega Man himself, your consistent avatar. He brimmed with charm and personality. He grew and changed as he went about his grim journey to end Dr. Wily's threat. And the games, especially the second one, felt perfectly internally consistent as you played them. Now Kokoron, on the other hand, feels like it was thrown together and assembled from pieces of junk lying around the Takeru offices. And I don't think that's an accident. I think it's an entirely deliberate attempt by Kitamura to capture the feeling not of watching a tokusatsu adventure show, but rather that of playing with whatever you pulled out of the toy box. There is a deliberate lack of cohesion in Kokoro, one that persists despite the presence of a world map and a sense of interlevel geography. Unfortunately, the result of this is a game that feels profoundly uncool in every respect. Mega Man 2 opens with a futuristic cityscape and a dramatic pan up the side of a building towards arresting hero. But Kokorone begins with A to wearing pink polka dot pajamas, gently floating down from the heavens, clutching an umbrella, Mary Poppins style, before monologuing to the player about the magical dream world they're about to enter. Now, for those of you who are having trouble picturing A to Peer, imagine a pig that got kicked out of Club Swine for looking too much like a donkey, and you're about halfway Weird off-putting animal, pink polka dots, magical dream world, don't worry about that right now. What's important is that there's a princess that needs saving, and so begins our adventure. The protagonist of Kokoron is not a lone Mega Man-type character, but rather you, the player. Uh, It is your dream that the Tapir is channeling, and you interact with this dream not as yourself, but by means of avatars assembled from various parts. You choose a head a body, and a weapon for your player character. Each part can be drawn from several categories and aesthetics, each which has its own unique attribute. If you want to play as a dragon-headed Gundam who shoots flowers, you can do that. If you want to play as Astro Boy if he were a boat, you can do that too. The combinations allow for a high degree of customization, but have the effect of rendering the player character into just an action figure. There's no personality Now contrast that distinct lack of personality with Mega Man himself, and some of Kokoron's lack of appeal becomes apparent. Mega Man invited you to embody a protagonist, whereas Kokoron invites you to create an avatar. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Within a decade, there would be an entire cottage industry of primarily western RPGs that offered both player customization and narrative and mechanical immersion together. But Kokoron is not a deep enough game to make that kind of character creation matter significantly to the overall experience. Kokoron also adopts Mega Man's bifurcated structure, with much of the game being non linear before converging on a straight path at the end. Unlike Mega Man, Kokoron places all of its locations on a map, and the sequence in which you tackle them has real consequences not just in terms of powers you acquire but also the way the world is shaped. If, for instance, you first tackle the Milk Sea and then wish to proceed to Trump Castle, you don't just start inside of Trump Castle. Instead, you have to actively work your way out of the Milk Sea and then travel into Trump Castle. You, you create a path that you have to walk. Uh, it's, it's a creative approach that almost, but not quite, gives the impression of a more Metroid-like world structure than any Mega Man game today. And it's it's interesting, even commendable, but the impression of being Metroid-like is not the same thing as being Metroid-like. It could have worked, but where cocoron really falls apart is in its aesthetic. It's not so much that it's cutesy. Uh, plenty of NES games succeed not in spite of, but because they are cutesy. The problem with cocoron's aesthetic is that there's not an aesthetic. Uh, The stages are garish, and the color palettes are eye-searing, but they're deployed to a middling effect. Everything is so bright as to cancel each other out, it's, it's just kind of a wash. The enemies are just a collection of animals. There's no real justification for why they hate the hero, or what they are doing in their particular stage. I have to wonder if the aesthetic might have played better with a Japanese audience than it might have a Western one. I don't have a reason to believe that, but it, it feels a question worth asking. Uh, because Kokoron was only ever released to a Japanese audience, Kokoron did not get to come West. Which is interesting because worse games certainly did. It's possible that the aesthetic was a blocker in translation, uh, that there might have been a judgment made that this game was not going to appeal to a world that had just embraced Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, But I think it's more likely that this was just a matter of timing. The Super Nintendo was on store shelves in the U.S. not long after Kokoron's Japanese release, and Nintendo's hot new console would almost certainly have sucked the marketing oxygen out of the room, in addition to setting a new standard for what was acceptable in a platform. It's likely that as a young company without significant financial backing, Takeru would have had to have been selective in placing its bets. And given that Kitamura and company were most familiar with developing for the family computer, they might just have not been ready to take that next step onto new hardware. Timing might have been Kokorone's worst enemy. As best I can tell from research online, Kokorom was a moderate success. It received slightly above average reviews, and it sold well enough for two separate ports to be announced. Uh, one for the Japan-only PC engine, and one to the Sega CD. Neither of these ports would ever be released. As Takeru's next project, uh, Koichi Yotsui's ambitious adventure game Nostalgia 1907, proved financially disastrous and put the company on the path to its eventual shutdown. When the company died, so too did the career of Akira Kitamura in video games. Uh, With the exception of contributions to one minor puzzle game, uh, Non Tanto Isho Kurukuru Puzzle, a Japan-only Game Boy and Super Famicom release developed by Game Freak, Kitamura was done after Takeru closed its doors. Now surely the father of Mega Man could have found employment elsewhere in the industry if he really wanted someone was going to pay him. The fact that he didn't continue developing video games indicates that whatever love he had for the medium was diminished, if not extinguished, after the failure of Takeru. It's a sad end to a career. Akira Kitamura didn't have a long career in the video game industry, all things considered. Start to finish, he lasted about a decade. Kokoron probably wasn't the best final statement he could have made in the meeting. But it was an earnest work, and represented a shot that he didn't have to take. Kitamura could have stayed at Capcom, he could have continued to work for the company that had made him. He could have continued to shepherd his new, highly successful franchise character for a decade or more. But instead, he aimed higher, and he took his shot that he missed doesn't make the shot any less worth taking. Decades later, Kitamura's most faithful protege would attempt to emulate him once again by taking his own shot, and like Kitamura, he would miss. But that's a story for another day. Thank you for listening to part 5 of Mega Bluster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. If you didn't enjoy this episode, I promise they're getting better. I'm working on it. Just just bear with me. If you have any feedback you'd like to provide, or if I missed something, you can reach out to clay at guilelessgamer.com, This and other social links are also in the show notes. How long will I keep on fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the X-Buster on my hand knows for sure.